Each week, we put out an everyday faith guide that corresponds with our Sunday teaching. Some of you may be aware of this. Some of you may not. That's why I'm talking a little bit about it as we get started here. It actually gets put out this prior to the Sunday that I deliver uh, the teaching or whoever is speaking. What this does is it helps really prepare your heart for what we're going to be talking about. Um, and then also, you can use this guide for your own personal study. So maybe you're someone who really likes to dig into the Word or, or grow your own faith, and you want a resource to help you do that. That's what this guide is there for. It's to give you some questions and some outlines to help you navigate the Scriptures for yourself. Uh, part of my story, the reason why we do this, is because I grew up in church, around church, heard a lot of sermons, a lot of teaching, but I didn't really learn to open up the Bible and read it for myself and get, grab an understanding so that God could speak to me, could really change my own heart. Are also our midweek groups, we let, use these guides as a platform of discussion so that we can, again, go deeper into just what I may be able to provide on a Sunday morning. The first thing that this guide asks the people to do who are utilizing it is what's called a check-in. It's a check-in. The goal is to become aware of your primary emotion, specifically for that day or maybe that day prior. I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes it's hard to give words to exactly what I'm feeling. I'm feeling my feelings or I'm not wanting to feel my feelings and I'm not quite able to put them into words. So, and, and I find that sometimes in those moments, I'm reacting to what I am feeling to those around me and especially those around me feel what I'm feeling even if I'm not able to give quite words to it. And so I just want to practice that this morning. I want us to, to get a little more comfortable with identifying our feelings. So I'm going to throw a slide up here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you some multiple choice. What is your primary emotion from this morning? And if you have to, if you're like, I'm still waking up, haven't quite got all my coffee yet, dip into yesterday. If you had to sum up your primary emotion, what word would describe how you felt. Here, these are just some choices. They're not exhaustive. So sad. Have you been angry? What about scared? Maybe you feel happy. Or you're looking forward and you feel excited. Maybe you just feel a little tender, appreciative, caring for those around you. The reason in our check-ins when we use this guide, the reason that we start with emotions is because it gives you insight into the posture of your heart. The whole heart, the, the word heart is used over a thousand times in the scripture. And it denotes the center of a person's physical, emotional, and moral activity. It is the core essence the Bible says, of, of really who you are, and it gets expressed and played out in all kinds of ways. It leads to action and activity. It leads to be able to respond and react. And so if you're not in tune with the core and the center of your being, 
You may not be able to have your feelings, for your feelings may have you. Dallas Willard puts it this way. When I speak of the heart, I speak of the center or inner core of our being from which all of our actions flow. The heart is the key and source to everything in your life. It's the command center. Everything you do, think, talk, and act flows from your heart. Let me throw up this next slide just to give you a picture of what that looks like. See, it starts with the spirit. The heart or the will. They're they're all kind of synonymous terms uh, for scripture. And then it flows into your mind, your thoughts or your feelings. But to begin to get in touch with that central core, we're starting with that almost that outer ring so we can be more intentional with who we are. And then it affects your body, your social spaces, and ultimately your whole essence. And see, we don't live in a culture that values the heart. We live in a culture that values romance. We live in a culture that values accomplishment. We live in a, in a culture that values individual expression, but not the health of the heart. And when I look around at the world, it seems to me that something is deeply wrong with the human heart. Flip on the news channel, scroll on social media. I don't have to be an expert or belabor the point to know that as we look at the cycles of news, as we look at, at what is propagated out there, that there is an issue with how humanity feels its need to express itself with the human's heart and how it is brought to bear on our world. You've experienced this. You talking to someone that you love, And that you care deeply about. But they say something or do something that triggers you. And before you can catch the words as they come out of your mouth, you've said a comment, you've you've given a facial expression, you've responded in such a way that you're like, how do I get that back, like toothpaste back? And the toothpaste tube. Or maybe you, you were so triggered that it's like, Okay, I said I did. I'm just going to smear it like a pie on the face. Like, I, this is what they deserve. But, but you realize this is someone you love or maybe even someone you care about. But it just came out and you just responded. In either case, under pressure, something emerged. Out of the lips, out of your body language, the heart spoke. People love to try and change that response By stronger willpower. Dallas Willard says our social and psychological scientists stand helpless before the terrible things done by human beings. But the warped nature of human will and the reality of sin are something we are not allowed to admit into serious discussion. We are like farmers who plant crops but cannot admit the existence of weeds and insects. And can only think to pour on more fertilizer. Similarly, the only solution we know to human problems today are education. End quote. We think that we can educate our way out of every problem that exists. But it's not human knowledge alone that can change the human heart. It's not even human laws that can change the heart. Because our natural 
instinct is to look for a loophole. So without a counterformative way that brings about change, we are only left with technique and power. And once the technique is deflected and the power removed, the heart springs back into its sinful posture. Both technique and power, divorce from something transcendent, brings death into our lives. You've tried it with more discipline. You've tried it with beating yourself up. You've tried with providing someone else just make me accountable and and help me understand or get it right. And you try and you fail. Because the discipline and the desire may be present, but the affection of the heart has not changed. See, the only way to see sin worked out of the human heart is a greater and more true story that doesn't just change our actions, but changes our affection. And when our affection is changed, when our affection is aligned and attached to the one true and living God, then our beliefs, our feelings, our thoughts, and our actions can change. I know a lot of people who want to see change in the world. They want to see change even in themselves. And and they try by that technique and that power. But what they've settled for is something lesser than a change of affection. This is why Moses retells the story of Israel to them in the first part of Deuteronomy before he gets into the law. Before he gets into the commandments, he needs to make sure they understand who God is and what he has done and why that should shape their response. Now Moses knows that that their heart is not going to be changed by these laws, but they can be informed and attached to this greater story of rescue that they have been redeemed, that they have been given a purpose to be with God for the world, so that then as they live, when they inevitably fail, they can return not to the laws that they failed to live up to, but to the lawgiver who loves them and who rescued them. And so that is what Moses begins to retell on the precipice of the promised land. And so when he restates the ten words of life that are given not as a crushing weight, but as a liberator to then respond to the God who loves, they can then begin to live full of life and purpose, unlike the previous generation who failed consistently to live in response to God's rescue. See, Moses wanted the people to live by more than just sheer willpower. It's no surprise when Moses gets to some of these latter commandments They become more like a checklist. Didn't do that, did that. Check that one off. We start to think, oh, I can do that. I cannot do that. We we, we get into that, that mentality where we start to keep score. And what happens is if we limit ourselves to keeping score, we will never actually deal with the heart behind the action. Because you and I will begin to live by the letter of the law or look for a loophole and where our emotions are a justification 
and where we claim our sinful actions are justified as well. So at face value, to describe do not murder as a word of life seems obvious. Of course, if you do not murder, you're going to bring about life. But when you take the larger story into account, how does this command work in relation to the wars Israel fought and will fight? Let's just look back up to the leading in of the other commandments. Take a step back for a moment. When we allow other things to be God and rob our hearts and steal our affections, what happens is we start to play judge, jury, and executioner because we live up to those standards and that prescription rather than God's. And what happens is then when we, when we give ourselves over to those gods, we become so immersed in the day-to-day, in the imminent, where you got to be at 8 o'clock, where you got to be at noon, what's happening after work, what am I making for dinner, do I get to watch my favorite show before bed or not? And we get so consumed with the imminent that we forget the eternal nature We forget about the eternal God that wants to connect in our day-to-day life. And we ignore the structure aimed to help us called Sabbath. And then we begin to disregard God's gift to help us choose him. Which in this covenant community, we're the parents. To pass down the faith. to, To call the children back to God. To remind them of that eternal story. But... We won't listen to the elders. We won't listen to the parents. We won't listen to someone who's got more life experience. Why? Because we're so consumed with the imminent. And we begin to justify our actions and our attitudes by what gets the job done. So our most natural default, again and again, will be to take the power of life and death into our own hands, to take the power of good and evil, of right and wrong, into our own hands and our own minds. So the sixth word of life addresses a response to misappropriated authority and power, the one in which we place the power of life and death into our own hands. See, for Israel was to embody life attached to God, this power to determine The value of life was not theirs to make. It was God's alone. They were simply to respond and live in such a way that he was the supreme determiner. Because he had given them life. So when I say murder, when we look at this commandment, I'm referring to the intentional killing of another person with malice aforethought. There is intent to cause harm or death, which may have been premeditated or formed in the heat of the moment. Within our justice system, we make a distinction on punishment based on intent. Later in Deuteronomy, Moses outlines cities of refuge for people to flee in the case of manslaughter, the accidental death of another and our society has adopted what was first brought about in the ancient world 
world in terms of motive. The Israelite family were to provide an antidote to the poison of sin. Death was now a part of the world due to sin. And the consequence of sin is death. So the Israelite family, this nation, was always meant to provide a recipe, a way of living that addressed the human heart and its outcomes and propagate a way of life. Which is why Moses outlines an application of this, this cities of refuge. Because sometimes accidents happen. Sometimes you're, not everything is in your control. And death, as a consequence of sin, occurs. But that was not the motive or the intent. What this command begins to speak into is the attitude of the heart. Where people stand in relation to one another. How they view other human beings. Meaning the laws and lifestyle, when we understand our hearts in attachment to God, we're going to reflect the nuance needed to value life at all points. See, living by the letter of the law provided grounds for a lifestyle within that culture of valuing life. Human life, I can't state this enough, is precious to God. You are precious to God. When we say your story matters or you're not alone, those aren't just empty statements that we do to make you feel good so that when you leave here, you go, I like that generation shirt. They, they make me feel good. They're statements that are backed by the truth that you are created for a purpose, that you were created unique, that you are valued, not because you are something that just happened, but because God thought you. He created you. He knit you together. And to murder is to ignore humanity's created nature. To take the life of another person is to rob God of representative and deputy, which is the highest form of treason. And what's amazing, as Moses outlines this truth later on in Deuteronomy, it stands in stark contrast to Babylonian laws. This command draws no distinctions in the value of life based on status, race, or gender, or socioeconomic status. All people were to be valued. Which, in every other culture of the world, uh, put a scorecard to what someone was worth. And based on where they ranked, you could simply discard them. So when God says, do not murder, he's saying, value life, all of life. And what's amazing is when we begin to treat human beings as equally sacred, as equally loved in the eyes of God, people actually begin to live without fear. That was the blessing of this commandment. This is why it's a word of life. Because people under the rule and reign of God could simply live. They didn't have to fear about others in the covenant community coming and just killing them. Getting rid of their life. They didn't have to have that fear. While other nations... Other people groups, even in our world today, there are, there are times when we live with fear because there are people who are living opposed to the will and the way of God, who are not living in such a way that God reigns supreme in their life and causes them to respond with love and see people as valuable. So that brings about fear because then you have to worry, where do I go today? How will I act? Will that just cause someone to pop off? And eliminate me? 
So this command is not spoken into just a good, moral, everybody's on the same page world. It's spoken to a covenant community so that they can build trust and live without fear. So that they could understand there's a God who provides rescue and provide value. And that they could have the freedom to not be fearful that life could be senselessly taken at any moment. It's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 cites this very commandment with the, and takes a look at really the human heart and looks at a loophole. I mean, just, just read this, how Jesus says this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21. says, you have heard that it was said to the ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Jesus counters the idea that one's standing before God can be determined by one's legal standing. The irony of Jesus' words is that while human courts may declare one guiltless of ex the external act of murder, who could be declared innocent if the criteria of judgment was every angry thought or demanding insult that undermined the true eternal there is not one of us here today, unless we're in denial, that hasn't had a thought or an emotion or a response that looks at another human being and almost wishes they weren't there. Or that you could be removed from this situation or that they were removed from your life in this moment. Maybe not murder that fight, flight, or freeze, we want to be removed from this situation. See, the seed of our attitude towards others produce the fruit of murder. Avoiding harsh action isn't merely the goal. Instead, it's cultivating an attitude and actions which cherish life as representatives of God within the world. It's looking at others and seeing them not as the sum total of their actions, but seeing them as representatives of God, loved children of God, created in his image. And recognizing in our heart, are we responding to them in such a way that places that dignity, value, and worth on them as God graciously and freely gives to us? See, the surpassing righteousness which Jesus upholds extends to every thought and action 
that is destructive of the bond that unites people under the reign of God. Because what happens is the seed of anger, the seed of unforgiveness turns into bitterness, which turns into unforgiveness, which turns into actions and attitudes and comments that actually destroy the other person. And so what Jesus does is he provides two examples for how someone could respond. Both examples place the initiative upon the one who becomes aware of the severed relationship to pursue with diligence all efforts to overcome the alienation with a spirit of amenable reconciliation. If you become aware of your anger or bitterness or unforgiveness, you must first give that to the Lord and then ask how he would have you respond. Truly the depth of God's standards as disclosed in Jesus reveals a standard far surpassing all legal maneuvering and external forms. Just because you haven't pulled out a gun, just because you haven't pulled out a knife, doesn't mean that you stand outside the laws of God. But what in fact, what that allows you to do is stand in response to the love of God. You see, when we start to recognize that we have all fallen short, we all don't live up to that standard, and that is not a weight that should be crushing. It's a law of love that can be liberating because we realize how Jesus moves on our behalf. Today, if you have hate in your heart or if you have wounded someone with your words or actions, then maybe you consider not singing the songs that we'll sing after I'm done. Not performing another religious act to appease God, but take a step to bring reconciliation. Maybe you actually need to send a text to grab a coffee. Maybe you need to make a phone call and apologize. It may be someone that you, they don't even know that you're a little upset with them. But you've been putting off forgiving. You've been relegating it. You, you've been holding anger and hate in your heart because you find it easier. You find it probably not actually easier. It probably eats you up at times. But because we've lost sight of what God has done for us, that while we were his enemies, he laid down his life for us to take us from being enemies to being friends, really to being family. That is the act that Jesus bore. That is why we sing the songs. That is why as we take communion is to remind us that we were once people with hate in our heart, with hate for God, with apathy for him. And he is able to transform. See, Jesus' solution is not a religious act, but the revival of a relationship. It's only when the person stops being an enemy can this occur. So we have things in our life that keep the enemy mode on. The reason that you may be a little bit unsure about moving towards forgiveness, about sending that text or making that call, is because that person in your mind is still your enemy. It's still someone that stands opposed and against you. Not as someone 
who Jesus died on the cross for and loves and gave up his life for. Because when we start to internalize that perspective, that truth, that changes our heart. It changes our actions. See, when we are triggered because someone does something, because someone says something, because maybe there's a place of abuse, and we've not been able to quite deal with it in a healthy way, our relational connections go off. We lose our sense of connection to other people and we become numb. We disassociate and we have difficulty sensing God's presence too. Brain state that this goes into is called simple enemy mode. Because people start to feel like enemies to be defeated or problems to be solved. And most of the time, these enemies are people we usually like. But because of that triggering, because of something that's happened in our past at that moment, they don't seem to be on our side. And all of our relational circuits have shut down, and we want the people and the problems to go away. So we don't listen well to others. And our minds are locked in on the problems. We want to get away from the person, even if we love the person or are supposed to love that person in conflict. We recluse, or maybe we argue aggressively and we'll be quick to judge. We all have those moments where because of past trauma, because of life circumstances, we go into enemy mode from time to time. And in that moment, we don't value that person's life. And here's the good news. If you have violated this commandment, there's a path to forgiveness. See, the old covenant was defined by you shall or you shall not. The new wrapped in Jesus is defined by I will. And he did. See, he gave up his life for you. He extended forgiveness to you. You were once an enemy with God, but you are now co-heirs with Christ because of Jesus. When we start to live out of this truth, it's all about what God has done to give you a new heart freely by his grace, by your own strength, by your own willpower, trying to live up to the letter of the law, you will not be able to forgive. You will not be able to root out that bitterness. You will not be able to overcome. But because of Jesus giving you a new heart, when you've been baptized in him and say yes to him, you will have the capacity to change. See, if you want to change, the only way you get that path to change is through the transforming power of Christ. He must give you a new heart that writes the laws of God on your heart so that your motivations begin to change. Some of you right now may not want that unforgiveness to go away, may be satisfied with that bitterness. See, it's only through greater attachment to God that slowly our affections and our heart begins to change. And for some of you, you're ready to take that step. You're growing in attachment to God. You're sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit, and you're ready. This is something I've been putting off. I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult because you can't control the outcome. But you're not asked to control the outcome. You're asked to simply respond to the good news and truth 
that there is a God who rescues and has sent his son Jesus for you. And if you live that truth, that truth will become evident in your life and in your social circles. And what's amazing is what slips out then is in our relationships is no longer contempt, but compassion. Where people are no longer your enemies, but treated as friends, no matter how they treat you. See, for we are all now the place where God dwells, taking with us the power of his promise. What's amazing is the New Testament uses two words for temple. One's kind of this general sense of the building this other is the holy of holies which one do you think it uses to describe you holy of holies see the work of jesus was so effective in cleansing your heart and renewing your spirit that you are like the holy of holies where god dwells see you're not doing it based on your own willpower you're not doing it based on your own strength you are trusting that the creator of the universe who created all people, sees them as value and love, will give you the strength to respond, to allow, to transform your heart so that from that core, everything that seeps out, that, that, that emanates, will be his love for you and for them. Because of the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus, we have to make sure that in this cleansing, we're not dragging some stinking old dead carcass with flies back into that place. Which means why we have to take steps for forgiveness. It means that when we become aware of that seed of bitterness and unforgiveness, that's why Jesus says, stop. Don't continue to, to, to do religious acts. Stop and go make amends. Pursue that. Because the longer that we ignore, we will begin to propagate a false image of God in our world so take steps to cultivate the value of life take steps to address the bitterness and unforgiveness with our own hearts some of you got to start going back to some training to work on your spiritual black belt to guard your heart do you realize what netflix is doing to your heart do you realize what your favorite podcast or daily listen is doing to your heart? Do you notice that your favorite va video game or maybe even your favorite show, after, after you watch it, the status of your heart, the emotions that you feel, that maybe it's a little easier to lash out to loved ones because you just felt all the feelings from that show? You are being formed and being conditioned in such a way that cheapens life. And the only way that we begin to have a high value of life is to go back to that author of life and recognize how he sees us. And so how are you being formed? What is conditioning your heart now? See, the people that we need in our world today are the people who have been through pain. They've been trauma, they've been through trauma, they've been triggered, they've lashed out, they've caused pain. But they've also become aware of their own feelings and their own heart and their own failures. And they've gone on a journey to begin the process of healing. 
They know what it's exactly like to, to be hurt and to hurt. But their goal in life is not to push that forward, but to be wounded healers. That is the call of Generations Church, is to be people who are wounded, who are helpless, who know that sometimes what comes out is hurtful and harmful, but we don't measure our actions and our attitudes by our own standards. We measure our actions and attitudes by that of the cross. And that allows us to be compassionate. That allows us to be loving. That allows us to turn enemy mode off. Because we've been found hope and healing in Jesus. So the band's going to come forward. And we're going to sing some songs. And true to the words of Jesus, I'm not going to ask you to sing because that's what we do here at Generations Church. Maybe you need to take this moment and you need to make that phone call. You need to send that text. You need to consider what that next step would be. Do not sing a word. Do not take communion. Do not give in the offering until you are prepared to say yes to Jesus. Until you're prepared to, to take that step of reconciliation. And for those of you who, who in this moment, sense the Spirit saying, it's time. Stand and sing. We invite you to do that. If, if the Spirit leads, go take, remember who I am by, by taking the bread and the juice. Remember my life given out for you. That you were enemy and now you're loved. That you are, or were an enemy and now you are a friend of God. Then do that. That is what this time is for. Maybe there's someone in this room that you felt a little angst towards and about. This is the perfect time to not let that angst be built up, but to begin to take a step in an action. So we're going to sing. We're going to invite you to respond. The band's going to play. But we want you to, above all, not simply say, I have not murdered, I will not murder, do not murder. But to be a person that says, I value life, all of life, and I will work towards that end because of Jesus.